whether it's with new content made DIY at home or with repeats of awesome shows, 3CR is with you, keeping you company through thick and thin. So don't touch that dial. 3CR, here to stay. Weekend listener, when responsible people across the US of the UN of the US of the world, rust belts, took to the streets to demand the COVID-19 restrictions be lifted. Restrictions they were breaking by being on the street protesting that the restrictions be lifted. Because God has given US of citizens the right to go to work, support their families, to come and go where they wish, and the far more important right for the great corporate sector to operate without restriction. Freedom of capital, the greatest God-given freedom of all. And as this guy from some freedom mob in Idaho pointed out, the health advisors around government are having far too much say when the agenda must be led by economic experts like this guy from uh, some freedom mob in Idaho. After all, he revealed his powers of responsible thinking. Lots of people will die even with the restrictions. Therefore, why not let them die without the restrictions? So add the freedom to catch coronavirus to their God-given freedoms. And we know these people are responsible because their commander-in-chief, Big Supremo Donald Trump, the poor, said they are responsible people who just happen to hit the streets just as Donald is urging the US of must go back to business as usual because the health of the economy is suffering and the presence of Donald's advisers and henchmen or women leading the protests is purely coincidental. And Donald had nothing to do with his spontaneous responsible protests other than the presence of his advisers and henchmen and women and calling for the liberation of democratic governed states. And even more great international leadership from the US of from Donald who, don't say that word ever, ever, sorry, uh, what word? Who? Bad, bad. Worst bad, bad ever, ever. Yes, Donald has frozen funding for the World Health Organization, presumably for leading him astray, luring him into a China trap, then soft on China organization, which acted too slowly, presumably explaining why Donald acted too slowly, although Donald didn't act too slowly. It was evil China and the who, don't say that word, ever, ever. Oh, sorry, sorry, and evil China and the fake news outlets and evil China and the Democrat governors and evil China and Democrat mayors and evil China and Democrats in Congress and evil China and Barack Obama. For all his faults, I don't know he got into the picture, but anyway, he's a major contributor to the pandemic and evil China. Because don't forget, Donald told us just two weeks ago, he was the first person in the whole world to know it was a pandemic, first ever, ever. And if only the, I'll say it softly so he won't hear, who had listened to his wisdom, greatest wisdom in the world ever, ever, the Chinese virus would never have occurred. But on the positive side, Donald boasted that the US of was leading the world for COVID-19 cases and deaths. Greatest cases and deaths ever, ever. Biggest defeat of evil China ever, ever. Some cynics say Donald's position has to be judged by the day, but I feel that's a bit unfair to Donald. I, I think by the hour or even the minute. 
In one of those minutes, he said his actions had saved thousands of lives. Doesn't the mind boggle at how many would have died if he hadn't? Related to that, last week we commented what a relief to see some common sense entering the discussions around coronavirus and public policy, that the lockdown was also doing intolerable damage to the health of the economy here. That very sensible quote from moneylender John Mooney, I wonder how many of the deaths that will be attributed to COVID-19 would have occurred within the next year or two anyway. It's time for our political leaders to take a real a reality pill before it's too late. Common sense. And a perfect opportunity to eradicate one of the demographic demographic threats to the health of the economy, too many oldies. Use this window of opportunity to get rid of us. And as the public purse picks up the caring employer's wages bill, the fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it commission, displayed real common sense when Mason Architectural Joinery, real name, applied to waive a worker's redundancy pay because, well, because it simply couldn't afford it. The bench ruled the worker entitled to seven weeks redundancy should receive a fabulous one week's pay showing great compassion for Mason Architectural Joinery. Although not a hell of a lot of compassion for the poor bloody worker. Literally poor bloody worker. But then it's probably a fair decision. Well, it must be. After all, it's called Fair Work True Blue Aussie. As the Supremo of the Council of Small Business Profits Organisations, the deep-thinking Peter Strongarm the Workers called for unfair dismissal to be also declared illegal during the lockdown. That is making it illegal to sue your caring employer for unfair dismissal. In fact, as evil unions make some concessions, a bit of flexibility on wages, conditions, holidays, that sort of thing, Peter declared the concessions made by unions expose the system's inflexibility. He praised the ACTU for coordinating greater flexibility in some awards to save jobs, but the temporary changes are an admission the current rules don't work. Thus, Peter concluded, we must retain these changes after we come out of this. That link, concessions are an admission. Don't waste too much time thinking closely about the logic of that, listener, because there's none. But Peter was backed up by the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, who said, direct quote, it probably is fair to say that there has been the type of change in three weeks inside the award system that you might otherwise wait 30 years to see. Crush them, of course, would be thrilled that workers are better off 30 years before their time. And former head of the Chamber of Profits, Peter Handy for the Wealth, called for the government intervention of that sector to be lifted as soon as possible so the private sector can return to what it does so efficiently like knowing how to handle a crisis, such as coronavirus, for instance. So you also want the concessions workers have given up to be lifted as well, Peter? Of course not. As my good friend Peter Strongarm, the workers, has pointed out, it shows just how seriously lazy avaricious workers have been crippling their caring employers. And it gets worse. The flat rate, 1500 a fortnight, the government will hand to caring employers to hand to the workers, ripping them off, will mean some workers will receive a pay increase, increase, forcing caring employers to call for 
flexibility, there's that word again, flexibility in how they distribute the wage handout. And I'm sure no one who loves and trusts caring employers could see a problem with that. The real problem, as caring employers point out, is that these workers whooping it up on their new fortune might start to get used to being paid. It would be unfair, indeed cruel, to raise the expectations of these workers and submit them to the bitter disappointment of seeing their income decrease if and when we have to go back to paying them ourselves. Typical employer always putting the worker first. Big Supremo, scuttled them more last son, supported the caring employer's balanced thinking, announcing on Thursday that when the greatest little economic order of them all can take over the economy again, industrial relations reform would be essential, presumably retaining concessions made by evil unions and tax reform to ensure the beneficiaries of public purse largesse aren't asked to refill the public coffers and deregulation, ensuring silly environmental concerns don't come between great corporations and their pots of gold. A good start would be to continue to allow workers holiday leave, but relax the crippling burden on caring employers by universal leave without pay. After all, workers must share the pain of the recovery. That sectet with the common touch who are the high court bench did themselves proud for the second week in a row, ruling last week that the federal had illegally seized information from a journalist's phone, forcing her to give up her password, presumably under threat of life imprisonment or a small threat of some sort, and given their honest dedication to the principle of beyond reasonable doubt, as expressed the week before, they would have fallen over themselves in their prestigious gowns to ensure the evidence obtained illegally was returned and could not be used as evidence. Just check on that. No, no, the evidence obtained illegally can be used as evidence. A, a journalist doing her job, well, sort of, she did work for the Lord Rupert Empire, can be convicted on illegally obtained evidence. That's so unjust. Surely she would have to appeal to the High Court. Oh, except, of course, the High Court of Rule has ruled it, it's not unjust. And anyway, it's only in the rarest of cases they overthrow a jury verdict entirely, and don't their honours, wise women and men all, exude the common touch. Finally, we spoke to real estate rental manager Rick Ripoff about the rental crisis arising from all this. Yes, it's very disturbing. Landlords are really suffering and the poor tenants can't pay. Can't or won't, taking advantage of the situation. But of course, when it's all over, they'll have to pay back every last cent of the rent they owe, or they've stolen, in fact, from the poor landlords. And the wages the government is paying for your staff, you'll repay a bit of that, no doubt, Rick. Rick! Oh dear, he's he's gone purple. Sorry, sorry. What are you trying to say? There's 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 uh, oh there's no comparison. Okay, fair enough. Good afternoon. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to yes, Fill in the. 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. April 1 has long been a global day of pranks, but unfortunately the announcement on that day by President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines was no junk. He addressed the whole nation hours after incidents of unrest and people massing for food and relief in the capital city, Manila. The pronouncement allows authorities to target and kill anyone in a public space. Quote, My order to the military and police, if they cause any disorder and they fight back and your lives are on the line, shoot them dead. Do you understand? Dead. Instead of causing trouble, I'll send you to your grave. Unquote. I spoke last Friday with Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Peter, that announcement by Duterte was made on April 1. Has it been acted on? Unfortunately, there's apparently been a case, yes, in a different part of the Philippines, not in Manila, where somebody uh, walked out of their house and was just shot by a uh, policeman, enraged a lot of people. Uh, It's obviously meant to intimidate, but it's the recklessness of it, you know, that sort of such a willful determination not to consider the COVID-19 pandemic as a health challenge. It's some sort of security challenge instead. The situation in the Philippines is is really accelerating in terms of the epidemic. I I took part in a uh, hookup on Zoom on uh, Wednesday evening and uh, at that point there were 5,223 cases and 335 people had died from the virus but they had locked up 25,000 people because they had you know, allegedly broke the lockdown. It's really a shocking different experience from what we've done in Australia. Uh, even though people are worried about police finding so many people here, really there's like uh, five times more people actually detained in the Philippines than have been tested even for COVID-19. So they're exchanging one lockdown for another? Yes, it's a lockdown instead of a lockdown, yeah. How would those people be coping in jails? I haven't got a lot of information about that, except that you know the, the prison... The hole in the Philippines is five times over capacity. So where there should be one person, there's actually five. It's 
it's impossible to talk about any physical distancing or precautions against the contagious diseases of any sort, including this coronavirus. So there are outbreaks of tuberculosis in, in uh, jails in the Philippines right now and other diseases that are contagious, really frightening, I think, for the people involved. And anyone who's in, in uh, the prison system would be very, very anxious that they could uh, catch this disease and, uh, and get very ill or die. There's a particular category. There's about 609, I think, uh, political prisoners, and quite a few of them, about you know, nearly 100, uh, are really uh, elderly and or, and or ill. You know, they, they are in these same conditions. And I'd imagine that the, the many poor in the Philippines, particularly in Manila, would find it very difficult to have this distance in, so not practical at all. It's impossible. You know, when people are living, you know, it's so many people in a small dwelling, you can't be two metres apart at all. And the dwellings are jammed up against each other. So it, it's really not credible to talk about social distancing or physical distancing in, the, in many parts of the urban areas of the Philippines. Talk about the citizens' urgent response. I'd imagine that's happening in a lot of areas. There's obviously a lot of grassroots responses to the to the situation. You know, the very negative experience there in Quezon City, where people were uh, arrested. You know, they were asking the local government unit for food, and it was the LGU's responsibility to provide it. But um, instead, the people got arrested. You know, in this situation, all sorts of networks. Uh, uh, called into action at the family level and at the church level and in the sort of um, other sorts of associations, that is, you know, classmates from graduating from school or from university, all sorts of networks have been uh, called upon to gather food and distribute food. More really localised organisation has, has uh, had to take on a bigger role than, than it might normally have and the sort of, you know, city-wide or national leaderships are isolated really from the communities because of the lockdown effect. And once again, Peter, when it comes to repression in the Philippines, the eyes of the world are looking elsewhere or they're closed completely. Well, yes, <clears throat> the COVID-19 is really, it's a global drama but it has sort of unfolded from one part of the world to the other and in a way which has sort of just dragged all the attention. So first of all it was China and then it was Italy. Now it's the USA, France, UK, Spain and those uh, poor countries where there's less media um, and less sort of integration into the global media networks there's less really less information coming out but uh, I fear for what will happen because you know the the rampaging of this virus through the richer countries is on right now but give it three or four weeks and and we will be seeing something like this happening in uh, obviously to me the Philippines is going to be one of them uh, but also in parts of Africa and Latin America where there's even less resources and less capacity to cope with it in a health way and then any other way at, at the moment it's alarming to think about but I, I think that's coming um, I just hope the world isn't exhausted 
in terms of its compassion and, and capacity to provide aid quickly, you know, to a new hotspot by the time that comes about, you know, in three or four weeks' time. You attended a conference in Vancouver, Canada, a month or so ago. The focus, I believe, was on the Philippines. Has anything come from that? The meeting was uh, convened in Vancouver for the, what's called the Global Council of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. So it, it was conceived of before the COVID-19 pandemic really broke um, and we were just lucky enough to hold the meeting before the total shutdowns happened. You know, I left Australia for that meeting. It was a bit of a dicey operation, but it was all okay to do that. When I was in Canada, Vancouver was locked down. Um, it was like a week ahead of Australia in terms of the shutdown. And when I landed back in, in Australia in March 22, the, you know, the very next day, the, all, all hotels, clubs, everything was shut and uh, there was huge lines of people at Centrelink um, trying to get onto the Jobs Seeker uh, benefit. You know, we were focusing in the meeting on how to elevate the human rights situation in the Philippines at the level of national governments and at the United Nations Human Rights Council. We also were thinking through how to actually mobilise financial resources from the international community for bail funds and uh, legal costs for human rights defenders who are being arrested and detained in the Philippines. Uh, all of that work is still to be done in a way. The uh, conceptualising of, of these programs or campaigns has though helped because we've it has helped in terms of responding to the COVID-19 crisis in the, in the Philippines. So there's, there's a flow of appeals, protest statements and uh, networking operations now underway. Hopefully we will get some phasing down of the, of the military and we will get some sort of uh, resources into communities which are really now struggling, I think, to, to get food. I think there's still an extension of the lockdown in the Philippines being considered, which from a public health point of view is probably a good idea, but with this uh, military way it's being done, there's really very little health work actually being done. For the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, we were really, it was very important to have the meeting. It's very, very difficult to get a sort of a working group at the international level in, in this sort of campaign, and, and we did succeed in doing it, and, and so on. I think it was significant achievement for us. Just briefly to two other countries that you're concerned about, and I'm talking about Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe. What's happening in Zimbabwe that you're aware of? Well, there's a lockdown there as well. Um, it was only going to be a three-week lockdown, and there's another discussion there about extending that as well. But the, the situation is that the system in uh, Zimbabwe has virtually got no resources to cope with anything, let alone a pandemic. In the case I studied, the very first person who died from COVID-19 in, in Zimbabwe was late in March, it was a very prominent young man from a prominent, powerful, politically connected family. He couldn't get a ventilator. He, he was a person who could ring the president and ask for help. 
there's not that many people in, in Zimbabwe who can do that. So there was a sort of calamity around his illness and then his rapid death and then the fallout as people were blaming each other for, for that. But what came out was the one hospital which was allegedly designated to deal with COVID-19 cases didn't have a ventilator and didn't really have running water, didn't have electricity. So it was like, uh, I think it was a, a hospital that had been, you know, operational in the past and was being refurbished with a Chinese government grant. It's, it's typical, I think, of what happens in Zimbabwe. There's a sort of a, a sort of fake story. It's, it's something's going to happen and then it's presented as if it has already happened and then some, some actual event takes place which exposes the situation as nothing's happened at all. Anyway, I think, I think that did demonstrate the problem. There's just no real health system to help people who get sick from this virus in, in Zimbabwe. Again, people, it's a massively poor economy that most people are in the informal sector, like 90%. The communities are surviving a lot on uh, repatriation of money from uh, either people who have left to work in South Africa or nearby countries or in you know, UK or USA or Australia. I'm hoping that those remittances are still getting through. But because of what's happening now in UK, USA and Australia, there will be less money. There just will be less money uh, getting sent. So I, I do think the squeeze is on, and I think the similar dynamic applies to the Philippines in terms of remittance. In Zimbabwe, we're just on the cusp of the pandemic hitting, so we, we just sort of expect it to get worse. In Timor-Leste, um, there's 25 cases all one group of students who came f f across the border from Indonesia back into Timor-Leste. They arrived on April 1. Luckily, they, they were identified as a problem group and are all put into a quarantine situation in a hotel. But about 17 of them now have tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so there's a sort of a hotspot and it's hard to know whether... I've heard that the, those 25 didn't really, you know, self-isolate properly in the hotel. So it's, it's uncertain yet, you know, just how much more it's spread. It's just set up in time. Uh, there was a, a team of Australians uh, as well as other countries setting up this uh, capacity in Dili. Uh, I hope they were able to manage. But again, I think that the truth is that um, there's not many, not enough resources in Dili and uh, Bakau uh, and some of the other little towns to really cope if there's a widespread infection. Finally, Peter, the COVID-19 lockdown of the crew of the cruise ship Ruby Princess now in Port Cambla. The focus has been on the Australian passengers, but seems to be little concern for the crew. Yes, it's been a real slog uh, for the last week. The... Uh, International Transport Workers Federation, the Maritime Union and the South Coast Labor Council have really put a lot of focus on the, the situation of the workers on the ship once it was uh, birthed at Port Kembla. You find out that, first of all, no one was tested um, and there were 200 out of 1,000 crew uh, who were quite ill. They were able to put pressure on the 
Brad Hazard, the Minister for Health in New South Wales. Through the week, there's been more and more testing done. It was really, really like a dribs and drabs situation. And, and as the testing happened, like more than half of those tested were, were being found to be positive. Um, and this morning, the news uh, finally came through that the, the New South Wales Health Department had agreed that everyone on board the ship would now be tested. Another aspect of this um, uh, campaign from the union side and, and I think from the South Coast uh, Wollongong community has been that uh, the people shouldn't be held on the ship. <clears throat> that uh, ship is already riddled with the virus. It's uh, So many passengers and so on uh, were affected to land the crew. So the demand has been to get everybody off the ship. Those who are positive should be you know, treated in the appropriate health facility or in a quarantine situation. And those who aren't, you know, who've got a negative test result should still be uh, self-isolated for a period and then flown home. And the uh, Carnival Corporation, which is a pretty big company globally, um, based in the United States, uh, it's, it's supposed to fly its workers home when they finish their, you know, job placement or their contract. You know, the, the government of New South Wales was going to just put the boat to sea, and and I don't know where they put the ship would go, but theoretically it was going to go to the Caribbean, which is a, about a 16-day voyage. You know, a lot more people would have got sick uh, and perhaps died on board in, in a voyage like that. It, now there's an inkling in the news reporting that Carnival Corporation has agreed that the, the workers will be flown home. So we we still got to get a statement from the New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller and, and the government in New South Wales that that's going to happen, and I'm hoping we can, you know, obviously there's pressure building for a, a proper solution that respects the basic human rights of these workers, and the sort of uh, process I've outlined to you takes place. They were saying, yeah, that the uh, the ship was going to be just in uh, Port Kembla Cam- for a couple of days so that the police could investigate other aspects of the, the shambolic story of that ship. But uh, as last week progressed, the day of sailing it got pushed back. But it's still, now that we're still saying it's going to sail on Sunday, but I don't think it will. I'm hoping it won't. And uh, and I think you know we, we need continuous community pressure on the government in New South Wales and on Carnival Corporation to make sure that doesn't happen. There's more about that because there were three ships that sailed out of Sydney Harbour 10 days ago, I think maybe eight days ago, and heading for Manila, and one was heading for Bali, and uh, each of them was, those two ships were, were full of Indonesian or Filipino workers. They were sent around the south of Australia to do that voyage. So, again, uh, we're looking at a 10 to 12-day voyage with, obviously, the virus on board the ships. The ships would be passing... Fremantle or up the Western Australian coast now. So we haven't heard anything more about what's happened to them. But that's a very big concern. And there was a third ship made up of uh, a range of different nationalities of the workers, which uh, we couldn't get the information about where it was uh, sailing for. There's a need to monitor what's happened to at least 3,000, maybe more than 3,000 workers who are on those ships. And very lowly paid workers. Yeah, I mean, the normal situation is, um, you know, roughly like 200 to 300 US dollars a month. And the contract 
six one to two years. So people don't go home for that long. They're sending money home. So you can imagine they've got nothing. You know, there's nothing much left for them. Yeah. So we're dealing we're dealing with people who whose work is actually making cruising very enjoyable for the passengers and and and. You can see feedback that most of them really love these these cruises, but the workers are being treated really like subhumans. It's it's really a sort of a great expose of how the world works and how the inequalities in the world really have a sharp impact when a crisis like this pandemic hits. And one group of people is treated very poorly, and uh, other another group of people gets a much better response. And it's all for the worst because I think in, in public health terms, if thousands of workers turn up in, in, you know, the Philippines and Indonesia with the virus in their midst, the impact in their countries will, will be worse so that the pandemic will keep going and it will come back to Australia through those channels. Thanks, yep. Peter. Uh, thanks very much for going across all that with me, Jan. You've been listening to an interview I recorded last Friday with Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. G'day, I'm Janine and I'm a koala researcher. Koalas have had a tough year, and so have we. We need some good news, and they need some attention. The 3rd of May is Wild Koala Day. Share a picture of a koala on your social media, wear a gum leaf on your shirt, and tag Wild Koala Day. Go to wildkoaladay.com.au for more ideas of how you can help koalas from home. A 3CR supporter. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Profits before people. It's all coming home to roost as more and more poor and disadvantaged citizens around the world are falling ill to the Corona-19 pandemic. It's true that others are impacted as well, but the majority are the poor, the elderly, people of colour, especially in the US where some are being buried in mass graves. But it doesn't have to be that way, and the small Caribbean nation of Cuba is showing the way. And not just at home, but assisting communities in many countries, an extension of what Cuba has been doing for decades. To find out more about how this is occurring in a time of crisis, I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, who has visited Cuba many times. Tim, once again, the Cuban government has shown its commitment. 
not only to its citizens but to many citizens of the world. But before you talk about that, can you just remind us of the hurdles that Cuba has had to overcome for many, many years until today and including today the crippling sanctions? Cuba has faced unilateral sanctions from Washington for at least 58 years, systematically for 58 years. And that has not just meant that Cuba can't trade with the US, which is its biggest trade partner, biggest neighbour, but also that any companies or enterprises in other countries that have at least 10% US shareholdings are also affected. So the US will attempt to impose fines, for example, on European companies, particularly European banks, if they have anything to do with Cuba. If Cuba wants to buy, say, medical equipment from Germany or Japan and there's some US interest in that, they're blocked from doing that. So that's imposed an enormous cost on Cuba trying to get, for example, medical equipment, but a whole range of other things too. But they've overcome that to a great degree, haven't they, by manufacturing and developing their own medical supplies and and just um, inventing, not inventing, but developing cures for different diseases. Yeah, it's true to an extent with medications because they have their own pharmaceutical industry and they produce generics and also they have their own unique medicines um, like the interferon version that's being used to treat COVID-19, for example, at the moment that was used in China and it's produced by a a joint venture factory in China too. But you have to realise that in the pharmaceutical business there's still a lot of trade and also with medical equipment there's a lot of trade, you know, so it's not uh, so easy to become completely uh, independent in today's world. What about um, alternative medicines in Cuba? Did they develop those as well? They would have been, some of those would have been there many years ago? Mm. Yes, that's right. And they've also developed them in context of while they support modern medicine and um, the normal clinical medicine and they share a lot, for example, a lot of the protocols for treating COVID-19 are, are similar across the world but with different emphases, you know. So, for example, in treating COVID-19, the Cubans and the Chinese both have been using a lot of antiviral drugs, whereas they haven't been used very much in the US for different reasons because they're very expensive and companies control their supply and so on. So when it comes to herbal medicine, you've got the same sort of thing going on. That there's, There are traditions in China with Chinese herbal medicine, for example, or traditional medicine, and also in Cuba, partly because they're cost-effective, also because Cuba's health system, which is based on salaried nurses and doctors, is not about trying to maximise medication but to minimise it. And so if there are simpler naturopathic cures, they will use those, you know, so the treatment or, or the, um, the practice of Cuban doctors, for example, is more oriented at education and prevention. And they use standard medications, but they also avoid them where they can. And if that means using uh, natural treatments, they do it. So that's always a part of a polyclinic, which is the intermediary institution in, in Cuba, that they have the latest in clinical medicine, but they also have traditional medicine side by side. How soon after the revolution did they start to help people in other countries? Well, interesting, very quickly because they lost a lot of doctors, probably because because doctors were part of the elite, more or less, in the cities in Cuba. Up to half the doctors left Cuba after the revolution because they really thought that they were going to be worse off economically after a socialist revolution. So they had to rebuild 
doctors, including some coming from other parts of Latin America in solidarity, but even when they had a shortage of doctors in the early 60s, for example, they sent a brigade of doctors to Algeria, I think in 1961, during the independence struggle with France. So even when Cuba was had a shortage of doctors, they started this practice because they believed in that sort of solidarity that they developed during the revolution. In more recent times, close to Australia, Timor, the Pacific? That's right. They increased the the institutional sort of presence of their doctors at the end of the 90s, which was also a period when Cuba went through a, a deep economic depression, basically, with the fall of the Soviet Union, collapse of their, their main trading partner. Um, in 99, they relaunched that. And um, it, in Timor, they began a program in 2003, in the Pacific Islands in 2006, and very rapidly they became the major doctor trainer in the Pacific Islands. And in Timor now we can say that the promise of Fidel Castro to provide a thousand local uh, trained doctors, Cuban trained local Timorese doctors, came to fruition I believe last year. So there's over a thousand Cuban trained doctors, all were, pretty much all working as salary doctors in Timor. And prior to that they only had 60 doctors, basically trained in a elite systems where doctors were private practitioners, private businesses. So they've really transformed the face, the character of the health system in, in East Timor. Just staying with Timor-Leste before we talk more about Cuba, headlines in the ABC Sydney radio a couple of days ago, Australian doctors aim to stop COVID-19 from tearing through Timor-Leste. Making out to me that here's the saviours from Australia coming to help the people of Timor. Did you see yes, that Yes, exactly. No, I didn't see the article, but I've seen similar ones before. Uh, I remember actually an anecdote which tells you something about the Australian media. I went to a number of the graduations of doctors in Timor in, uh, over the last decade, and I think it was one in 2012, there was over 400 doctors graduating, 400. Biggest graduation of doctors in the region, I believe, the Asia-Pacific region, but they were all trained by the Cubans. And I, I had a former student who was working at the ES newsroom, and I rang him up and I said, listen, do you want some footage of this graduation if you want to run a story on it? And uh, he said, oh, no, you know, we haven't got space. There's not an Australian angle in it. So they weren't interested at all in that. But when there was one Australian-trained doctor involved or some Australian aid program involved, they'll be in there. So really... The media generally, including SBS, has been incredibly parochial about this. They're only interested if there's an angle which uh, promotes Australia. Well, looking at the COVID-19 now, the situation in Cuba, what is it? So Cuba got its first cases, uh, some Italian tourists, in early March. And just before that, they started to they started a campaign, which included all of the standard sort of public health measures, social distancing and so on, but they did it in their own way. They did it in a different sort of way. For example, today I receive every day in the email, not that I need that detail, but there's a briefing every morning on television, on Cuban television, about the state of the the virus, the epidemic in Cuba. It's reached a stage where there's about 600 people infected. They've had a few deaths. So it's low level in international terms, but they take it very seriously and they have done a lot of very similar things to other countries, but in a slightly different way. They have economic compensation for people who are out of work. 
they have a special provision for old people looking after old people. They've done a house-to-house survey to see if people have fever, and they try to track down all of the cases. So they have some <clears throat> general stay-at-home quarantine-type measures, but then because they've identified most of the cases now and they've stopped their tourism pretty much, they are able to identify where there are infections like particular buildings, particular apartment blocks, and so some much stronger quarantine measures just for particular apartment blocks where there have been infections. So they've used similar measures, but they've done it in their own way, which involves a one-to-one family doctor type of approach to medicine, which they've always used. And the treatment? And the treatment, they're using a, similar to the Chinese, they've been working with the Chinese closely on this, they've used a cocktail of up to 22 different drugs, but with a, <clears throat> with a strong emphasis on their antivirals and immunotherapy drugs, which is almost absent, not completely absent, but almost absent, for example, in the US. So there's at least four different antivirals, and there's the Cuban version of, the latest version of interferon, which is an immunotherapy drug. They've used that relatively successfully, and they've been producing it, as I said, in China with Chinese. And where else are the Cubans now sending their doctors and their medicines to help other countries with this virus? Yes, the last I looked, they had 17 brigades in different countries. There's a very hard hit. Spain was hard hit, but there was an area called, little area called Andorra in the north, which was even more hard hit. They were asked in by the local, uh, the local government there. Um, they just sent a second brigade to Italy. They, they were in Italy very early. They were helping at a pharmaceutical level in China, but the Chinese had, had a lot of uh, their own doctors. So they're in 17 different countries, and this is part of a tradition that they've done for disaster relief in other countries. Um, it's a group called the Henry Reeves Brigade. Now, Henry Reeves was an Englishman who was, in the 19th century, who was a, a solidarity worker, effectively came to help the Cuban Wars of Independence. He attained the rank of commander and died fighting for the freedom of Cuba, so he's honoured by the name of these brigades they send internationally, including the ones they sent, for example, to the, the earthquake in Pakistan. That's the same groups that they're sending to these 17 different countries these days to help uh, fight the, the latest virus. How widespread around the world are these countries? Pretty widespread, but most of them are in Latin America and Africa. But in recent times, like we mentioned Timor, they've come into Asia They went to Pakistan, as I said, for the earthquake. It's mainly in Latin America and Africa, but now you see that there are some European countries that have these brigades because the European countries are being, European countries in the US have been hit the hardest there, actually. They offered to send a brigade to, for example, to the US some years ago when there was a bad hurricane in New Orleans, but the Bush administration refused that. So they are very widespread around the world. Are they able to get into Venezuela now? Ah, yes, they've been in Venezuela for, you know, almost two decades, basically. With the Maduro government, there's no problem at all there. They, they had a problem with the Brazilian government. With, with Venezuela, they, they're still in Venezuela. But Venezuela, of course, has been hit by sanctions designed to cripple the Venezuelan economy and to damage the Venezuelan people. So, of course, the, the compensation they're getting from from that the Cuba is getting from their doctors in Venezuela is less than it was. But I might mention on that point that the Cubans don't charge in a normal way for their doctors. If it's a very poor country, they've sent them for free. If it's a wealthy 
country like Brazil or Venezuela, then they've charged a commercial type of rate. So their idea of compensation for sending their professionals varies according to the capacity to pay of the of the country. What's happening with Brazil? I know that a few years ago when Bolsonaro came in, he blocked the Cubans from coming in and many of them went home. Well, Are they back? Well, he, um, yeah, he, uh, Bolsonaro was saying a lot of bad things about the Cubans and they decided to withdraw at that point because it was clear that the agreement uh, with the previous government was collapsing. They, but when they came into Brazil, it was precisely because there were a number of areas that simply had no medical services at all, so they were very needed. There have been stories uh, more recently saying that uh, the Bolsonaro or people in his administration were wanting the Cuban doctors to come back because, to deal with the virus, but because his politics have been very erratic, I'm not sure what's happened since then, basically. I'm not sure whether there has been... There's still the Cuban diplomatic mission in um in Brazil, in fact, one of the one of the people there is a former ambassador to Australia, Pedro Monzon. So they're open to sending doctors back again, but there'll have to be some new type of agreement because basically Bolsonaro didn't treat them with respect. I'm just wondering when, if doctors and nurses are in so many different countries, what drugs are they taking with them? How can they have enough to treat their own people and yet treat people in many countries of the world? How are they producing enough? Well, they're not, generally speaking, they don't take their own drugs to other countries. They depend upon the protocols in those countries. Now, in some of the Latin American countries, the Alba countries, protocols about drugs, but say, for example, Cuban doctors in East Timor, they will depend upon the health department there to acquire the supplies of drugs there. They don't take their own. In some countries, they've set up factories to produce Cuban drugs. There are some unique Cuban drugs that aren't available unless they're licensed out or, or manufactured in country, like the, the drugs for diabetic ulcers. There's a, uh, a prophylactic vaccine for lung cancer that Cubans have interferon immunotherapy drug. So in some countries like Syria, like China, there are some joint ventures to produce those sorts of drugs, but generally speaking, they'll rely on the local production. I'm not sure whether they've... Uh, there would have to be a separate protocol, for example, for the, the Cuban doctors to take drugs related to COVID-19 to those countries. I believe it would be done for, through the health department of those countries. Almost always it's a bilateral agreement between governments. Looking at what Cuba's been able to achieve, how would you judge what the Australian government's been doing? Well, the Australian government has... Uh, there's, there's two things to say here, really. On the one hand, the Australian government has been erratic in the way that it's um, dealt with its COVID-19 measures. On the other hand, the actual outcomes here haven't been that bad. If you look in, in international terms, Australia is doing fairly well. I think there's about 60-odd deaths. The death rate to population, the infection rate, even if the infection rate is probably still underestimated is pretty low. We're certainly nowhere near the levels of all of those European countries where there's been a, an explosion, you know, the UK, Italy, Spain, France. There's been some terrible outbreaks there. So, so far, possibly because of the infrastructure, the public health system that still exists here, the outcomes haven't been so bad despite the, the erratic policy decisions. Can you comment on the US for a couple of moments? Is it mainly the poorer, the blacks yeah. who are dying, unemployed, homeless? 
yeah, there, there is a lot of um, racial differentiation in terms of the impact there. The U.S., there is not a, a real public health system. There's a Center for Disease Control, but there's not universal guarantee. There's this managed care thing where corporations run the health system in the U.S. So in that sense, the impact quite different. And, of course, the really intense spots have been in New York and New Jersey, a couple of other areas. So the U.S. has its, its huge prison system and the military bases as incubators spreading this disease in the U.S. too. There's COVID-19 in most of the 150 military bases in the U.S., and with the biggest prison system in the world, that's also a systematic public health system to deal with it. That's why they rely so much on police and bring out the National Guard, the armed forces there. So the U.S. has a particularly bad problem, the worst problem in the world now, and it looks like it's going... And erratic, again, erratic um, political decisions going on. So it looks like it's going to last a lot longer in the U.S. than some other countries. Finally, Tim, two countries in the Middle East that you're being greatly concerned about in recent times, particularly with this virus, Syria and Iran both have lots of sanctions on them, which makes it even more difficult for the governments to help the people. Yes, well, Iran had a very bad outbreak, which has now turned a corner, let's say. What do they say? Flattening the curve. They're past the peak. Most countries actually in the world are past their peak, but China was the first one to get well past it, which means that they can begin to relax those sorts of restrictions that were there when the disease was unknown and the treatment was unclear. Um, Iran has turned that corner, although there was over 4,000 deaths. In Syria, I think there's a sense, but they also acted very early. In fact, both Lebanon and Syria, for example, closed their schools and introduced some protective measures even before they had cases. I know that for a fact because I was heading there and my trip was aborted by by those measures. So they acted early rather than wait, like the UK, wait until things got very bad. And the UK and the US both waited until things got bad before they implemented those sorts of measures. So, but every country is somewhat different the way that they introduce this sort of um, uh, social protection or social isolation measures. They do it in different ways and the way that they do those is quite important. So Syria... Although there's still a war going on, there's still a U.S. occupation, there's still terrorism, there's still the the sponsorship of terrorist groups by Turkey and the U.S., for example, but they've got that disease fairly under control. In Iran, they had a big hit, but they've got it more under control these days. Okay, Tim, final words? No, no, thank you for your time, Jane. Thank you for <laughs> following through on this, on this okay. topic. And I was speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson, long-time supporter of Cuba. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate. And stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.
Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1300 655 Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. 1300 655 1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300-655-06-1300
prisons in Western Sahara? Oh yes, there's a there's a prison in in Al Ain and one in Dakhla. Don't think there's one in Sanaa. Oh yes, a lot of oh, and plenty of Sahrawis in those prisons too. But uh, these these longer term sentences, they they it's just part of adding extra pain to the families to place the prisoners oh, so far away from home, so that it. It's either costly or, or quite impossible for the families to visit them. I think it's just for that reason that they take them to these prisons uh, in Morocco itself. One death, sadly, Kate, not from the virus, but after a long battle against cancer. And the tributes to him have echoed the respect and sadness felt by his people. Indeed. He was uh, very well loved and, and Hamad, Hadad, and very well known as well, especially among the supporters of Western Sahara, because he travelled so widely around the world, being the coordinator between the Sahrawi government and the Minerva. So every time uh, the question came up in the United Nations, he would be there. If it came up in the European Union, and of course he was one of the ones who spearheaded this move to take cases to the European Court over the plunder of the natural resources of Western Sahara. You know, he would be there. He would be talking all the time with people in all of these different settings, in Geneva, in Addis Ababa, whatever. So he became well-known to people around the world, uh, but also very well-loved by the the Hadawis at home as well. Was he trained as a lawyer? Actually not quite sure of that. He would have been a student during the beginnings of this struggle because um, you know he would have been like 20 or something in 1975. I think he completed his studies before he took part in the uh, actual war but was there from the from the start. I'm not quite sure what the studies were, but certainly over the course of time, his language, his English was extremely good, and and many languages. So could be that he studied language. I don't know. In the early years, did the Moroccans ever get their hands on him? <laughs> I don't know that question either. I don't really maybe something happened, but. There's not been a lot written about those early days in his life. We maybe need to find out more about that, yes. He'll be a hard act to follow, certainly. Yes, indeed, it will be a hard act to follow because uh, he was everything that a good diplomat should be. He was very charming and very intelligent, but also you could tell that he felt things from the heart and he really uh, was very sincere in everything that he wanted to do. I should have thought was quite convincing. It's probably due to his skills but this, uh, and partly, I mean, that although this Harvey cause has been 40 years without reaching a resolution, if they hadn't had diplomats like Haddad uh, pleading the cause, they would have been annihilated by the Moroccans 20, uh, 40 years ago. So I think 
you know, that it, it, it can look as if the, their diplomacy isn't successful, but it's, I often think it's like an arm wrestle, and the arm goes down this way sometimes and back the other way sometimes, but it never actually, there's not really ever a winner. It just stays in this kind of stalemate. But if there wasn't any resistance, then it would be over in a flash. And so I think the Sahrawi resistance is a lot more successful than it sometimes appears. I would imagine there would have been a big funeral, but would that be something that the Moroccans would allow? It wouldn't be in, in the occupied territory. It would, it would have been in the camps. He was based out of the camps, um, Haddad, and, and probably they took his body home to be buried there. Um, he was in hospital in Madrid uh, at the end of his life. Yes, he probably was repatriated to be buried uh, in Western Sahara. Disturbing news from the UN, what's been described as a, a scandalous appointment by the President of the General yeah. Assembly. Human Rights Council operates in Geneva. All the human rights work is done in Geneva. Uh, to do with the work of the Human Rights Council in reforming the treaties of, of human rights. Apparently, a lot of work has already been done on most of the actual nitty-gritty work on the reform has been done. But writing of the final report needed two people and they... Um, a brilliant Swiss diplomat who seems to be extremely well suited for the job and to be paired with the Moroccan ambassador Omar Hilari although apparently this tandem have worked well before to us it was a complete appointment of the wrong man for the job and not at all the right man for the job just the fact that they've chosen someone from an occupying power to have that position, it sort of smacks of whatever, doesn't it? Completely inappropriate that a country that is occupying another country, which is right against international law, that, that, that any, any Moroccan should be in, uh, given a position of telling other countries how to behave in human rights it does sound very strange. There have also been complaints about the uh, way in which they have extracted all those uh, so-called confessions by the Gedeimizik group that I mentioned earlier. They were all extracted under torture. They weren't even able to see the charges that they were being accused of. They were blindfolded and told to sign or, or make their mark without reading the, the charges. So that was completely improper, and those investigations had not been followed up in the way that they would be obliged to do. The other thing is that this particular man, Omar Hilali, has got a track record of corruption and being used uh, specifically against the Sahrawis. Uh, in that respect, he personally is quite unsuited to this sort of work, I would have thought. So this is totally a political appointment? I suppose so, and, and, and of course the, the wall of Moroccans will have worked very hard. They will have used those carefully built-up contacts in these different UN buildings, um, bodies, to, be, to get appointed, because as soon as they get 
a position like that. Then it's all over their papers about how wonderful Morocco is and how it's uh, correcting its human rights reputation because it's um, favouring human rights, supporting the reform of uh, the, the uh, treaties and so on. And the fact that they will never actually implement any of these things can be overlooked. They just like to uh, trumpet it abroad that they're reforming themselves. And, you know, because he's un unsuited and because uh, he will be making as much mileage out of it as he, he can, or the Moroccan machine will be making as much out of it as they can, a consortium of different non-governmental organizations working from Geneva with the, at the head, the American Association of Tourists, uh, but all these others brought in, including the Australia Western Sahara Association, <clears throat> be sending an, a letter of protest, and it's actually going to be an open letter, so anybody can see it. And maybe we will be publishing it on the ORSA website, orsaawsa.org.au. I'm just waiting to have the final version uh, agreed by everybody. I don't think it's going to change a lot, but um, it, it does instance some of these points that I've just been making. I would imagine that there's a few countries in that region of northern Africa which wouldn't be too pleased about the appointment either. Yes, I think I think that's that's no doubt true, and um, because it, I mean. We're always taking the position of the Sahrawis who get a very rough spot at the hands of the Moroccans. But it's also true that plenty of Moroccans get badly treated by their own judicial system. And anybody there who wants to do what the Sahrawis are doing and demonstrate and ask for, appeal for change in some way, to ask for more transparency, to ask for a voice, to ask for independence they are also imprisoned and, and, and treated very badly. So it's, one of, it's a country that has got a, a very bad reputation when looked at against other countries by organizations, uh, human rights organizations around the world. It tends to come out as one of the worst of the worst. You've spoken a couple of times about Horst Kohler, who last year resigned as the personal representative of the Secretary-General of the UN for Western Sahara, there's still not been a replacement for him. There hasn't, and that is another cause for concern. The Security Council uh, did discuss the issue of Western Sahara this month in April, it's like six months before uh, the mandate of Minerso becomes due, but uh, nothing was said about uh, making a new appointment. So that is a worry because that is the the vehicle through which a, a peaceful peace process should be negotiated. And the Sahrawis are getting more and more desperate about this, and many of them would like to go back to war since the peaceful method doesn't seem to be working. Just wondering, Kate, about the lockdown. I'm sure that the people in the camps are in lockdown. How does that impact on the goods that come in from overseas to keep them alive? Oh, well, I mean, uh, hopefully they, they uh, 
observe the measures that any of us are doing that of cleaning and decontaminating anything, sanitizing whatever comes. Once it's there, I mean, since there has been no COVID in the camps, one hopes that there isn't any lurking there from visitors because they do have visitors from overseas. And in fact, just before the clampdown, there was a, a youth, an international youth conference and they had to sort of hurriedly get all those people to go home so that they could close each of the camps from each other and also from the nearby town of Tindouf in southwest Algeria, which would normally be the main source of daily needs for, for people. Uh, there are shops in Western Sahara, but in, sorry, in the camps, but they would be uh, most getting their supplies from Tindouf. However, there's a good story about that because um, one person that I got in touch with to see how things were going told me about this little project that one of them has. He's called Talib Brahim al-Khalil, and he is a desert agriculture engineer. He is trying to produce food locally to meet their needs in, in small little projects like a family uh, vegetable patch, like any of us might do. And, and I have to say, a lot of our, my friends, including myself, are also trying to grow vegetables as part of our, our, our sort of lockdown activity. So it's quite nice to think of people in the camps doing the same thing. You think, though, of the lack of water? Oh, yes. Well, yes, there is a, a, a lack of water, and it has the disadvantage, the, the water that there is, is artesian water, and so it's quite saline, and it can be difficult to get the right kind of species and plant that will withstand the salt. But there's a, a, a fair bit of knowledge of growing in saline soils and with saline water, I think, around the world. If they can just bring that knowledge to bear, they should be able to grow. I mean, years ago, there was a, um, a project started by the British NGO called War on Want to grow food in, in the Sahrawi camps. They all, each village grew, uh, had a little garden. They would put a wall around it to protect it from the harsh winds that come and the sandstorms and all that. They were growing quite well, but the government wasn't terribly happy about it because they thought it was the wrong symbolism for them to be putting down roots. They wanted always to appear that the camps were temporary. They were just waiting for their opportunity to return to their proper country. So it didn't get a lot of support from the government, but it, it was quite a successful project. Finally, Kate, when you think of what the people have gone through over many, many decades, this is just one more challenge for them. That's right, exactly. And uh, isolation is not really something that is new to them at all, although they are very sociable and they are very used to being able to meet together and sit down and, of course, in their culture, have their tea and chat and talk and greet each other with very uh, generous hugs and, and kisses and so on. So 
to have to keep one's distance in that way must be quite harsh for them as it is, again, for people all around the world. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Jan. And that was an update on the situation in Western Sahara from Kate Lewis, a member of the Australian Western Sahara Association. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. My name's Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. I've been charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act for helping to organise a safe car convoy protest calling for the release of the refugees at the Mantra Hotel and across Australia because of the risk of COVID-19. Labor MPs Jed Carney and Peter Khalil have called for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and Jed Carney sent us an audio message supporting the goals of the protest. 26 refugee supporters have been issued fines of $1,652 each, making a total of $43,000 in fines. We'll be challenging the fines and the incitement charge in court and we need your help. We've got a sign-on statement, a petition, a fundraising campaign for our legal defence and a public meeting with Craig Foster, Mosford Manus, Julian Burnside and myself on Monday the 4th of May at 6.30pm. You can go to rack-vic.org or facebook forward slash rackvic for more information. Your solidarity can make a difference for both civil liberties and the urgent campaign to free the refugees. A 3CR supporter. The Pacific nations are not being spared the coronavirus. Journalist, author and researcher Nick McLaren will focus on that today. But first Cyclone Harold, which cut a deadly path through Vanuatu, as well as the Solomon Islands, Fiji and Tonga. But Vanuatu's damage and destruction by far the most catastrophic. Nick, over the years you've been an infrequent visitor to Vanuatu. There have been cyclones before, but it must be hard to imagine, particularly the largest island of Santo, described as no longer recognisable. And this is after the second Category 5 storm in five years. Yes, it's clear that um, one of the strongest pieces of science from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the global scientific body that looks and researches this area, is that there'll be increasing intensity of cyclones. There's some debate about how regular they'll be, but um, there's pretty strong confidence from the science that cyclones will become increasingly strong, fierce, dangerous. And that's certainly the case in the Pacific. Vanuatu was hit just um, nearly six years ago by Cyclone Pam, which was a Category 5 um, cyclone. That's the, the highest level, or the most intense level. And just over the last few weeks, we've seen the passage of Tropical Cyclone Harold through the Pacific, which affected not just Vanuatu, but a number of Pacific countries, Fiji, uh, Tonga as well. There's been a few deaths, but certainly enormous devastation, particularly in the northern um, islands of uh, Vanuatu, uh, the island of Espirito Santo, which is the largest island in Vanuatu, uh, nearby Pentecost Island. Pentecost, from photos that I've seen, has just been smashed by the enormous power of this cyclone. How do people cope 
after a disaster like this? Well, one feature about Vanuatu is there's enormous uh, spirit of self-reliance and indeed a lot of work has been done in disaster preparedness. Just before um, Cyclone Pam, I went down to one of the southernmost islands in Vanuatu, a little island called Fatuna, together with some non-government organisations to look at the work that was being done on a project around disaster preparedness and community community mobilisation. Fortuna is a volcano, a dormant volcano, and there are six villages clustered around the base of essentially this this volcanic mountain that comes out of the ocean. Um, there's no roads, so there's a small airstrip, and then you walk uh, along uh, paths through the bush, um, up and down around these rocky formations uh, to get to each village. We spent four days walking around the island talking to people, and there was great uh, work being done to prepare for this. Each village had set up a community disaster um, committee, which involved not only the chiefs, but young people, women and, and others. They had um, a lot of small micro-projects going on to do things like what they called cyclone food. They were looking at ways that they could build up supplies of food that would last for a few months until their gardens were re-established, because often people's foods gardens get wiped out during the, uh, the cyclone. So they were doing things. There was one young woman who cannibalized an old computer and got the cooling fan from a computer and she was using that to dry fruits and she was trialing, you know, how to make dried pawpaw and those sorts of things. So there's an enormous amount of innovation and preparedness doing what they call community vulnerability studies, working out which houses were near a river or which uh, might be exposed to a landslide or um, which trees uh, get old and might fall on people. All that sort of work was being done in preparedness. And so even though the cyclone has caused enormous devastation, um, there's a need for outside support and certainly there's a need for long-term funding for rebuilding. The initial response is often people getting off the backside and doing it themselves. Um, I've been tweeting with a colleague, a doctor in, in Vanuatu, who sent some photos of people in Santo. They put out a call on the radio um, and through the coconut wireless, uh, through word of mouth, to get people to bring chainsaws so they could um, chop up all the trees that had fallen in Central Santo and particularly around the hospital. And that meant that people could um, access the, um, uh, the hospital. So there's very much a spirit of uh, self-reliance. And one of the things that's obviously compounded this is this pre-cyclone and post-cyclone activity is all happening at a time that the country is locked down because at the moment Vanuatu doesn't have any cases of COVID-19 and they want to keep it that way. What about water and sanitation? It's a huge issue in the Pacific. You know, one of the the things that's striking is is um, all the messages come out of the WHO and the international bodies is use soap and water to wash your hands. But many people in the Pacific don't have access to reliable sanitation or even running water. According to the Pacific Community, the main intergovernmental technical agency across the Pacific, 46% of people don't have access to clean drinking water and 70% of people don't have access to proper sanitation. And so there's once again a need for innovation about this. I wrote an article uh, um, that's published on Inside Story. I'd encourage people to have a look at it. One of the earliest initiatives was in uh, that I, I reported on was in the freshwater camp. Uh, which is a, a squatter settlement just on the, the outskirts of the capital, Port Vila, in Vanuatu. And people there had set up 
enormous bamboo poles that they were using essentially as water tanks, as water systems, filling them with water, punching a hole in the side of the bamboo with a plug, and um, you pull out the plug and there's a stream of water running out and a bar of soap literally tacked onto the, you know, a bit of string on the side of the bamboo. So kids in the in the squatter settlement who didn't have running water in their own home could come out and wash their hands. Um, and they were doing community education and trying to explain to people, um, often with low literacy, what you have to do about, about COVID. And I think it's worth stressing that Pacific Island countries have had pandemics before, going back through the colonial era, the arrival of uh, smallpox into the Pacific decimated populations in places like Guam and so on, the Spanish flu, so-called, uh, the, the major pneumonic uh, influenza after the First World War in 1918-1919, caused enormous devastation across the Pacific Island countries. Many put up quarantine barriers, but because they were all colonies um, of one or other colonial power at that time, they couldn't control their borders. And so uh, a ship called the Taluni, SS Taluni, travelled from Apia through Fiji and on to um, um, Samoa, which was a New Zealand colony at that time, and it was devastating. Um, 90% of the population of Western Samoa at that time was infected with Spanish flu, and some 20%, 22%, some estimate, of the population died. It was an enormous tragedy, and it's, it's in the memory of Pacific communities that many of them have been affected by influenza, by smallpox, by other pandemics brought by sailing ships, tragically, that's still true for the colonies today in the Pacific. And more recently, measles? Yeah, well, Samoa had a big uh, measles outbreak. In fact, across the Pacific, there was a measles pandemic. There's um, a lot of stupid anti-vax nonsense spread on uh, social media. It's like the stupidity in Australia of people who don't uh, believe in vaccines um, as, a, as a preventative health measure. You know, 83 people died in, in Samoa because their rate of vaccination for measles had dropped significantly. There were six other countries across the Pacific affected by measles. This has really stressed the impact of these pandemics on public health systems, which vary from place to place. There's very good medical care in some areas, not so good in others. Uh, for example, there's major concerns about Papua New Guinea. Currently, they only have two confirmed cases of covid um, but uh, if there's a widespread infection uh, of, of the coronavirus through Papua New Guinea, their health systems are relatively weak and there will be an enormous technical problem of how to deal with it. Um, other people have managed very well. And indeed, it's worth stressing that in the independent countries in the Pacific, only Fiji, currently with 16 cases, and Papua New Guinea with two, are the only independent island nations that have got cases of COVID. The range of countries, Samoa, Vanuatu, Tonga, Cook Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati, all locked down instantly. They uh, Very early on, they saw the danger of this, how it would decimate populations, and so they banned the arrival of cruise ships very early, smart move, locked down borders to stop international travellers. The Marshall Islands did this uh, at the end of February, and people thought, oh, this is a bit extreme. They stopped all flights in and out of the country for two weeks. Um, then that's extended, and now, of course, most countries in the world are doing that. Um, so Pacific countries very quickly saw the danger of the pandemic. The cases, though, that are at the highest levels in the Pacific are in the overseas territories, call them the colonies 
uh, of the Pacific that don't control their own borders, that don't have local control of governance, of regulation, of police and so on, even sometimes of health budgets. So Hawaii has the highest number of cases in the region, the U.S. state, followed by um, Guam, the U.S. territory of Guam in the Western Pacific, which has 133 cases. Now, that's nothing compared to what's happening in France or the United States, obviously, but for these small countries, that's a big hit. Similarly, French Polynesia, Tahiti, has 55 cases, and even New Caledonia, although they controlled the outbreaks, uh, New Caledonia, because they run their own health service under the Namir Accord, they've got only 18 cases. So it's Hawaii, Guam, um, and uh, the French countries. Even uh, Rapa Nui, Easter Island, which is under Chilean occupation, um, has five cases and one death. Um, the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas, the US Commonwealth, has cases. Um, West Papua, under Indonesian occupation, similarly has cases. You know, everyone likes saying, oh, we're all in this together. Yeah, well, if you run your own affairs in the Pacific, then um, things have been controlled. That's not to say that there won't be cases in the future. As we know, this is a very contagious disease. But the quickest controls were put on by the independent nation states and not by the colonies in the region. I'd like you to talk a bit more about Guam in a moment, but what's happening about the overseas workers, particularly here in Australia, but also in New Zealand? We've had the the government here telling workers, well, you can go home now. They've finally changed that policy. Um, There are many temporary migrant labourers in Australia. Um, Some estimates up to 1.8 million people working in Australia as non-citizens, but on uh, a variety of visas. That's everything from skilled workers, lots and lots of working holiday makers, uh, backpackers as they're called, the um, uh, Pacific Seasonal Worker Program and the Pacific Labor Scheme, which are bringing regulated schemes to bring Pacific Islanders to work, particularly in uh, fruit picking, but in other areas as well. A lot of New Zealanders have work rights here, as well as international students have work rights up to 20 hours a week. Sometimes people do more than that, of course, under the books. So temporary labor mobility is a structural part of the Australian and New Zealand economy. It's striking that the government's JobKeeper program only applies to permanent casuals, not to people who've got less than 12 months, but certainly not to migrant workers. So there's, pick your figures, more than a million temporary workers in Australia from overseas um, who still have to pay the rent if they can't afford to go home, who still have to feed themselves, but who aren't going to get some of the welfare benefits that have been issued for Australian citizens, and it's an issue that's that's growing away. The government's response, and it's the same in New Zealand, has been to extend the visas of Pacific seasonal workers that are trapped in Australia. Um, So normally they're here for six months or so. Um, Now people are able to stay. Um, How long that will go for? Well, how long's a piece of string? It depends on how the the pandemic plays out. Um, But certainly no new people are coming some Pacific governments like Vanuatu have banned recruitment for the current period of people going overseas um, because they obviously don't want uh, the risk of people coming back with the, the virus. But uh, it's, it's a difficult situation. The other problem, too, is that there's a real need to monitor the condition of the workers that are in Australia because often um, Pacific seasonal workers following the harvest trail will be staying in caravans, um, 
often they may bunk, you know, many people to a room um, in quite poor accommodation. You know, the, that's been a real concern of many trade unionists over the conditions, not the pay, but the working conditions in rural and regional areas that don't have very good accommodation. So there's still a lot of questions about the health and well-being of Pacific workers that are in Australia. But I think it's it's worth stressing that this temporary non-citizen labour migration is a structural part of the economy and uh, it's really important as Australians hunker down to protect themselves, they need to think about the non-citizens who are working in the country who face the same hazards uh, health-wise and economically that we all do. Even if they wanted to go home, Nick, can they go home? Well, some countries are saying to their nationals, don't come home. Um, I interviewed the um, Tuvalu foreign minister the other day and they were looking at the situation case by case. Some students, for example, who were studying at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji were brought home very early on before the, the spread of the virus in uh, Fiji. But now Tuvalu is saying to its nationals living in Fiji, because of the coronavirus um, um, being confirmed, uh, uh, 16 people in Fiji have now been diagnosed. The numbers are pretty small and they're under you know, fairly tight lockdown in Fiji. Um, but the government of Tuvalu has said to people, we understand the difficulties, um, but please um, stay where you are. I have a very good friend um, who's a Kanak who was in uh, Suva. Um, it's taken him a month to get home. Uh, Fiji sent a plane to pick up supplies that are provided by the French from New Caledonia and uh, a number of 16, I think, New Caledonian residents who were trapped in Fiji for a month were uh, allowed to, to piggyback onto that flight um, that was sent to pick up the freight in Numea. So there's a lot of uh, practical questions. This was evident very early on. For a lot of Pacific Islanders travelling um, uh, around the world, they have to pass through a number of hubs. So to go to the Solomon Islands, for example, most flights fly through Brisbane. Um, many go through Auckland, through Nandi uh, in Fiji. But Australia, New Zealand, Fiji have got very tight border controls uh, and, and, and uh, many flights, as, as everyone knows, have cancelled. So if you have to pass through another country, do you have to go for 14 days quarantine um, as you, you pass through? Um, Australia decided after some diplomatic lobbying by Pacific countries that Pacific Islanders travelling through Australia just in transit wouldn't have to go 14 days in quarantine when they landed in Australia. Um, but um, that was pretty early on in the pandemic and as we know um, um, international travel has uh, collapsed. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and I'm speaking with Nick McClellan author, journalist and researcher. But when you look at the economic situation and and the isolation, how do they manage that? Well, it varies from country to country according to their economic status. But it's it's going to be a really tough time, even for countries that have avoided the health crisis, there is an, an enormous number of economic impacts that will reverberate for months and years. The obvious one is uh, uh, the flow of remittances. Um, Some countries in the Pacific are very reliant on money sent back by their nationals who work overseas. So Tonga, for example, about a third of its gross national product, uh, 30-odd percent, comes from remittances. That's Tongan workers in Australia or New Zealand or other countries sending back money to their family. 
Now, often they're in jobs that aren't available in Australia. Apart from construction, many Tongans have lost their jobs in Australia, so they can't afford to send money back home to families that are reliant on the the income coming in. So that loss of remittances is a a pretty immediate blow at family level um, for many countries. Some countries are particularly uh, uh, dependent on tourism as a major part of their revenues. Um, So countries like Fiji, Vanuatu, Palau have been hard hit by the loss of tourists um, and uh, the lack of international flights, cruise ships being banned and so on. Um, I I think a lot of people don't like cruise ships anyway because of the environmental pollution they bring and uh, the type of tourism that it is. But the loss of that can hit some communities that are are reliant on it. If 40% of your GDP is made up from tourism, as is the case for Fiji, uh, the loss of tourism now for this period and potentially for, for longer as the aviation industry rebuilds um, is going to be a, um, a major economic hit. Um, and that will hit the poorest people, you know, the people who are cleaners, uh, the people who are cooks, the people who make handicrafts uh, for the tourism industry uh, will be really hard hit. Governments are going to have to go into debt as they spend more on health budgets, um, and uh, that has obvious implications. You know, Australia has blown its uh, deficit for, for years and years and years, and that's going to be true. So many Pacific governments are calling on the World Bank, the ADB, the International Money Fund, and other institutions to provide short-term soft loans. And this is where the geopolitics gets interesting because China has been very active supplying uh, medical assistance at the moment, both Chinese government and Chinese foundations like the Jack Ma Foundation have been providing masks and equipment and uh, we're going to see a geopolitical battle between China, the United States and indeed Australia over who's the best friend of the Pacific um, in uh, coming months and years. Just wondering where religion fits into all this in the Pacific. It's a very religious part of the world, mainly because of the, the missionaries who came when um, the colonisers came. We've got countries like the US and Brazil, fundamentalist Pentecostals. What's the situation mainly in the Pacific that you know? Yeah, you're right in in, um, uh, in that diversity of religious uh, institutions. Most people in the Pacific are Christian, although uh, Fiji, for example, has a large Hindu and Muslim population amongst the Indian communities. And people in the Pacific, by and large, are much more active churchgoers uh, and uh, much more active believers than your average Australian or New Zealander, which are much more secular societies. There's a different attitude to uh, pandemics and to disasters generally, and this has been played out during the debate about climate change as well. Some of the more fundamentalist and Pentecostal churches, uh, evangelical churches, particularly the American-influenced sects that are coming in, have a very different theology to what they call the mainline churches, Catholic, Protestant, uh, you know, Lutherans, Americans and uh, Uniting Church equivalents, Methodists and so on, across the Pacific. Um, so you get uh, different theological responses to disaster. As we've seen with wackos like Margaret Court or Israel Folau, some of the, the more Old Testament churches see disasters, pandemics, as God's punishment, whether for homosexuality or for abortion or fornication or adultery or, you know, add your favourite sin here, whatever whatever you, uh, you know, think is wrong, God is punishing the community for that sin. And that's a very strong Old Testament 
you know, reactionary theology that's quite common amongst some of the smaller sects in the Pacific. Uh, the more mainline churches, um, while, you know, believing in God, also believe in human agency and also social justice and social responsibility. So we've seen this in the climate uh, debate where um, uh, the main churches through the Pacific Conference Churches, the main ecumenical body that sends uh, denominations all around the Pacific, has talked a lot about um, um, the need for action. People can look on Inside Story, uh, the website, a story I wrote about this question, and the headline was, was a quote I, I spoke to church leader, and he said, look, God will protect us, but he wants us to wash our hands. Parable of Noah and the ark, you know, Noah was getting ready, Noah was prepared for the flood. And so there's a whole complex theology about this. We all deal with this response through our own cultural prism. And you see it in Australia where racists and whack jobs like Malcolm Roberts are calling it um, the Wuhan coronavirus or the, the Chinese virus so that people see these natural disasters through their own political, cultural, religious prism and it, it can bring out the worst in people as well as the best. Having said that, churches by and large in the Pacific play a fundamentally important role in community outreach. Pretty much every village in the Pacific has one or more churches, one or more denominations in the in the uh, the village. So the church has outreach in the way that government doesn't. And there's a lot of work being done to educate church leaders about COVID-19, about the coronavirus, and particularly about the response. Most churches have adapted their um, um, practice to deal with this. So not sharing the communion cup, you know, even cancelling services and going online. Um, social distancing and physical distancing in the church and all those sort of practical things to stop the spread of the virus. Um, but that's not true of all of the wacko denominations and, and there's concern about this uh, with a lot of public health messaging from health departments around the region. Next, Nick, to your article on the coronavirus carrier. Since you wrote that, a sailor has died from the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The debacle in Guam around uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is a a symbol of colonialism in the Pacific, ongoing colonialism in the 21st century. Guam is a Micronesian island in the Western Pacific, has a population of about 170,000 people, but it's still a a territory of the United States. It was seized from Spain during the 1898 Spanish-American War. That was the same year that there was a coup in Hawaii and... uh, Uh, The United States Marines took control of Hawaii, overthrowing the Hawaiian Kingdom. The United States at that time wanted coaling stations for its warships to travel across the Pacific. And in 1907, uh, the then 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, sent what he called the Great White Fleet, um, which was a series of battleships that toured uh, the region, came to Australia and so on basically saying that um, having defeated the Spanish, this was an American lake. This is our territory. Fast forward to the 21st century, one of the U.S. aircraft carriers, nuclear power, deployed in the Pacific as part of the U.S. 7th Fleet, is the USS Theodore Roosevelt, named after the 26th president. And his foreign policy was, speak softly but carry a big stick. And uh, these nuclear-powered aircraft carriers... Uh, the Theodore Roosevelt, the USS Nimitz, the USS Ronald Reagan are deployed in the Pacific as part of the 7th Fleet 
um, commanded out of Hawaii, what used to be the U.S. Pacific Command, now called the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And these uh, are the big stick that the United States wields. Guam is really important. It's closer to the Philippines and uh, certainly to the hotspots in the South China Sea than any other U.S. Uh, territory. And a third of the land area of Guam has been taken for military bases. Uh, it's one advantage of being a colonial power. You can do what you want. So some of the best agricultural land has been swallowed up by Anderson Air Force Base. It's a massive airstrip that has B-52 bombers and uh, drones and other things based there. Uh, Guam has a beautiful harbour, Apra Harbour, and the Apra Harbour Naval Base, uh, US Naval Base Guam, is, is an enormous facility. Guam has been entangled in the chaos that is the US response to the COVID pandemic. Um, and while there are some legitimate criticisms of China about how they handled the uh, censorship of news of the, the pandemic early on, it's a clusterfuck what's happening with, uh, with the US and the Roosevelt and Guam are at the centre of this mess. Explain what's happening. The aircraft carrier visited Vietnam in uh, February this year and it's believed that a number of sailors were infected with the the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus when they were in Vietnam and they then developed COVID-19, the disease. By the time it, the aircraft carrier, which has a crew of about 5,000 people, got to Guam, there was an enormous concern that COVID was spreading amongst the sailors. As I say, nearly 5,000 sailors crammed on this aircraft carrier. And while it's a big, big ship, the sailors below decks are pretty cramped together. And you only have to look at what's cruise ships to see that these are, you know, a, a perfect environment for cross-contamination. So the captain, Captain Brett Crozier of this aircraft carrier, a memo to a number of people calling for uh, the the relocation of redeployment of sailors from the ship on, on shore. He wanted basically to move, uh, originally it was supposed to be 3,000, now it's up to 4,000 of the 5,000 crew on shore and arranged with the Guam governor for them to be put into our hotels. The luxury tourism hotels in Guam are all empty because of the lack of uh, uh, international tourism. So the Navy said, let's get these blokes off the ship and stick them in hotels. Because the memo that he wrote leaked to the San Francisco Chronicle, he was dismissed by the acting U.S. Navy Secretary, who's a Trump appointee and uh, part of the Trump uh, anti-China grouping. Thomas Modley, this acting Navy Secretary, then went to Guam, chartered flight, costing a quarter of a million dollars, and denounced the captain before the crew, um, saying that he was, quote, stupid and naive for writing about this and sending it through non-secure channels. Um, I think the captain, you know, deliberately, uh, you know, wanted to protect his crew. The point in my story called Coronavirus Carrier, which is on, on the Inside Story website, is that the, the furor that's blown up in America about the sacking of the captain, about the fate of the, the crew, ignores what happens to the people of Guam. The Chamorro people, the indigenous people who make up about 40% of Guam's population, um, are just written out of the story. I spoke to a number of people in Guam, including some health workers who worked there, who were horrified that the U.S. was bringing hundreds, literally thousands of sailors on shore, um, knowing that there'd been a, a, an outbreak of COVID on the ship. 
the I spoke to one health worker who works as a lab technician at one of two hospitals. She told me that Guam has only two civilian hospitals. Between them, they have less than 30 intensive care unit beds, and Guam already has, to, up to today, 133 confirmed diagnoses of uh, COVID, five deaths. So this is from travellers, this is from residents of Guam um, who've been affected globally by the pandemic. Guam has its own problem to deal with in terms of uh, community safety and community health. And the US Navy has now relocated nearly 4,000 of the 5,000 crew on shore. And they now have, at the time I wrote the story, 155 cases of COVID. They now have 589 cases confirmed diagnosed of COVID, um, including one death of a young sailor who died. The US Navy has been operating on the basis that it has to maintain its own readiness for deployment in the region, but at the expense of the indigenous Chamorro people of Guam. Chamorro women's organization, a Hyagan, a familia, asked for the sailors to be quarantined on the US bases. They said, look, you've already taken a third of our land area for US bases. Why don't you keep the sailors within the bases rather than put them into the community, into the hotels? And, you know, three or four thousand sailors have got to be fed, have got to be cared for. So you've got local Guam residents, local Chamorro, working in the hospitality industry who are putting themselves at risk to feed and, and care for thousands of U.S. sailors. And this is this is going on in a number of places. Um, latest figures I've seen, the U.S. Navy has about 950 cases, most of them on the Roosevelt, but also the USS Ronald Reagan, which is a similar nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, which is part of the U.S. 7th Fleet in the Pacific, based at Yokosuka in Japan. They, too, have cases on board. The U.S. Nimitz, uh, which is uh, currently in maintenance in the United States, but about to deploy to the Pacific to plug the gap. They've been in quarantine for 14 days. And, and a lot of it's come because of military secrecy. The Pentagon announced early on that they would not confirm which U.S. troops, soldiers, sailors, marines, had covered. They would give a bald number, but they wouldn't say which base, for example, had cases. They wouldn't say which ship had cases because this would be operational information, as if the Chinese were going to use this crisis to come and invade Guam. It's ridiculous. But um, the Navy has put out um, orders to uh, people to say, don't say which ships are carrying COVID. And that caused a lot of concern, obviously, for the ports that they visit. Similarly, uh, the New York Times reported that the U.S. Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, told senior military commanders not to make statements about the coronavirus pandemic that might criticise the White House or conflict with the message coming out of the White House. And as you'll know, the White House has been just madness in terms of the mixed messages coming out from President Trump. He can't hold mass rallies during this uh, presidential election year, so he's using a daily telecast streamed live on most major networks in America to rant and rave in a very Trumpian manner. A few weeks ago, he said that he wanted America opened up by Easter Sunday. Well, Easter Sunday's come and gone, and the state governors are saying, hang on, we haven't got control of this. There's 25,000 deaths in the United States. It's a tragic, tragic situation. And as elsewhere, poor people are bearing the brunt of it, people without proper housing, people without proper health care, people with complicating diseases like diabetes and so on, people with poor health. 
it'd be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. And of course, on the horizon for the Pacific is the RIMPAC. This is where the global pandemic is really raising a, a, a debate about regional security. As you say, the rim of the Pacific war games are due to be held uh, between June and September this year. RIMPAC is the world's largest naval military exercises. It's held every two years. It's been going since 1971. And the Royal Australian Navy, Royal New Zealand Navy, together with up to 20 countries, participate. In the past few RIMPACs, China, the People's Liberation Army Navy, was invited to join the RIMPAC naval exercises. This year, however, because of US-China tension, China has been uninvited to come. And the latest statement from uh, the, the Pentagon is that they want to go ahead with the war games, which is in waters off Hawaii, and inviting 20 countries, 25,000 sailors, marines, air crews, and so on. People in Hawaii are understandably angered and outraged. Hawaii already has hundreds of cases of COVID and a number of deaths because of, particularly from international travellers, Hawaii is a major tourism spot, and that was, as with Australia, it's overseas travellers that have caused the virus to spread in the community. So you've got a situation where now the US Navy is talking about 20 countries to participate in naval war games. And the obvious question is, what the hell are they thinking? Well, they want to show, I believe, that the US Navy is the toughest kid on the block, that the United States stands ready against aggression, um, that's sending a message to China. You may be providing medical supplies to 80-odd countries around the world, but America's still number one. And the people of Hawaii, particularly the indigenous Kanaka Maoli population, who once again have seen the population decimated by past pandemics, are saying no, and they're calling for that. As a journalist, I approached the uh, Australian Department of Defence to ask them whether Australia this year would participate in RIMPAC, as we've done, you know, 2018, 2016, 2014, and so on. They said that they couldn't confirm uh, one way or the other, um, but that any participation would be according to the strictest medical controls, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, uh, basically the Australian government hasn't yet decided whether it will join RIMPAC. And I think it's really important because one of the features of this is that the sailors' health is at risk, but also uh, the people in Hawaii during past RIMPACs, because they go on for weeks and weeks, these exercises, many ships call in to Honolulu, to the Pearl Harbor Naval Base, and sailors are allowed out for rest and recreation. So you've had crews um, from these ships um, going out into the community in Hawaii. Now, many ordinary people working in Hawaii, uh, uh, people in the hotel industry and so on, who are having a tough time, face the dilemma um, that local businesses are pushing for the games to go ahead, the war games to go ahead, because they see you know, thousands of drunken sailors as an opportunity to replace the tourists that are missing, you know, replace drunken tourists with drunken sailors and make your money. For the workers in those industries, obviously, they're the ones going to be put at risk. And a bunch of, sorry to put this bluntly, a bunch of drunken 20-year-old sailors out on a bender are not the most health-conscious people you can imagine. So it's a recipe for disaster, but the United States currently, the position is that the, game, the, the war games will proceed from June. So I think as the date gets closer, this is going to be quite an important issue, and I think it's something for Australians to say, are we going to follow the United States in its anti-Chinese mobilisation at the moment, or are we going to say, listen, you know, sailors shouldn't be cooped up floating around on a warship just to practice war games, bombarding other people, 
it's just madness. Finally, Nick, to a great degree, climate change has been pushed into the background, but in reality it's there with this crisis, isn't it? This virus crisis. Look at its source, uh, very much so. You know, the changing physical environment, the changing climate is very much tied to this. Um, there's a, an author named Mike Davis who in 2005 wrote a, um, a book about the H1N5 virus that broke out at that time. It's called The Monster Next Door and it's worth going back and rereading. Mike Davis is a, a political ecologist who's looked at the intersection of politics, of economy and of the environment and the ecology and he sees these things as very much interconnected. You know, it's striking how the the close of the aviation industry has transformed the environment in many places. Shutting down a lot of coal-fired power generation in China and in India has cleaned up the air. The two issues are interlinked. I interviewed last week Dame Meg Taylor, the Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, and the forum has just developed what they're calling the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway, which is to provide regional assistance, health-wise and uh, economically, because of the pandemic. I asked her whether climate change and other issues have been pushed off the front pages, and she said very much so. Obviously, this medical crisis is important, but climate change remains, with or without the coronavirus, the greatest single threat to the security and well-being of Pacific Islanders. So the Pacific's concerned. Uh, you know, the global climate negotiations, the Conference of the Parties, scheduled for Glasgow later this year, has been postponed. Um, so similarly, a UN major UN global conference on biodiversity has been postponed quite sensibly because you don't want to bring thousands of people and stick them in, in one hall to breathe each other's uh, air. But um, uh, that's going to have implications for how people will act the global emissions are dropping simply because of the shutdown of international aviation, the shutdown production generation when they come out of the, the worst of the lockdown that we're in at the moment. And uh, so there's a concern. Uh, Dave McTaylor from the forum secretariat said the concern, for example, that China to boost its uh, economic uh, standing after this uh, pandemic will ramp up uh, coal-fired power stations um, simply to get back online quickly. So there's a whole debate to be had about how much post-pandemic recovery is very much a green recovery. If there's going to be public investment, um, not just to guarantee jobs at the moment, but to rebuild economic activity after the pandemic, how much will that be business as usual based on Angus Taylor's fantasies of building new coal-fired power stations? So there's going to be a battle about energy policy just as there is about economic policy Will workers be asked to face austerity to pay off the debt? You know, I can hear the conservative voices already saying, well, I'm glad that's all over. Now, someone has to remove the debt and deficit that we've built up. And you know who they're going to be talking about, uh, who they want to pay the price. People keep saying we're all in this together, but we need to be thinking about what sort of environmental, what sort of economic policies, what sort of social policies we want um, in coming months these issues play out. Thank you once again, Nick. Thanks very much, and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. I think it's really important, as many people are doing it tough, particularly those that have lost their jobs, uh, those face lords, uh, uh, those uh, uh, with uh, health concerns uh, that uh, uh, are facing it, people who live alone. You know, there's a lot of people doing it really tough 
in Australia at the moment. But let's think of our neighbours. Think of Vanuatu that's uh, been hammered, not just by the preparations to, to keep out the COVID uh, coronavirus, but also by a Category 5 cyclone. Um, you know, Australia's aid program is currently under review. There'll be a push from people like Pauline Hanson and others to sh- cut back on foreign aid in order to benefit uh, hardly done by Australians. But we're a rich country and we need to be thinking about our neighbours as well as ourselves. We need a, a collective response to this crisis. We need to be thinking in terms of solidarity rather than isolation at this very difficult time. And many thanks to Nick McClellan, journalist, researcher and author. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.